The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. First of all, I should mention who I am. Maybe that's good for those that are online. I am Ajahn Nisarano. Most of you know me here. I've uh, been around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm an Australian monk who was born in Perth, actually, and uh, ordained with Ajahn Brahm in his monastery in Western Australia, and now have been a full monk for 23 years, and this will be my 24th uh, Vasa this year. So that's, and for 14 of those years, almost 14, I lived in Sri Lanka, and uh, which was a wonderful experience. But now, due to COVID, it's not possible. <laughs> and for the last, uh, and for eight of those years, I lived in a cave on the side of a mountain. So that was a very wonderful experience to have to live in a cave in a Buddhist country and go on arms around in the morning and then come back to the cave. It was a five star cave, though, if people were worried. <laughs> Uh, about uh, living a rough life. It wasn't that rough. Getting up and down the mountain was rough. <laughs> so I was going to ask you what today is. But actually, there's a lot happening today, isn't there? So it's Easter Sunday, yeah. So that's a, that's a big uh, holiday, a big uh, celebration in the Christian tradition. And of course, it marks the... Uh, the resurrection, we say, of the of the of Jesus Christ. That he, after three days, after being crucified on the cross, that he rose from the dead, and was then ascended into heaven. There are many other stories that go about what happened at that time, and you can see that on YouTube, I'm sure. But the point of it, of course, for me, and I think uh, probably for many Christians, is that uh, it is the triumph of the uh, mind or the spirit over matter. And that is uh, something that Buddhists can uh, also um, uh, appreciate, can appreciate. And that's a very important distinction, that the body is one thing and the mind is another. And though we all look after our bodies quite a lot, <laughs> in fact, most of our lives are centered around looking after the body, making it comfortable, having homes and clothes and vehicles, everything for the body. But what do we do for the mind? And of course, this is the area of Buddhism, you know, developing the mind. So that is uh, the um, uh, this part of the uh, significance of today, of course, is that it's, it's a holiday because it's Easter Sunday. And it's a joyful day for Christians because they... They, uh, the, they, they say in the church, I remember from my youth actually, the Lord is risen. <laughs> and that is a very happy uh, sort of occasion for people. I always think Good Friday wasn't such good news for, for Jesus himself because it was a very painful experience dying on the cross. But of course, in Buddhism, one of the things that the Buddha, and somebody pointed out this to me the other day actually when I was talking about Good Friday and so on, they said, didn't didn't the Buddha discourage us from getting reborn at all? And of course, that is the point of the Buddha's path eventually. When we come awakened, when we realize that whatever life we take, wherever it be, whatever realm of existence, even in a heaven realm, it is impermanent and one will pass away from that. Therefore, the Buddha, and it's also the Buddha mentions that it leads to suffering, difficulties and problems. And he said, it's not self as well. And so for those reasons, he never encouraged rebirth. 
But it's not a matter of encouraging rebirth or not. It's understanding what samsara is about, what our life is about. So that's uh, that's uh, the Buddhist perspective on it. There's another significance to today as well. End of daylight saving. <laughs> but there's, uh, there's quite a few people here. So it's, uh, it shows that you weren't uh, perplexed by it. You know, Now that people live with their mobile phones nearly 24-7, it's pretty hard to um, um, get it mixed up. Though I remember in WA when they trialled it years ago, People did. They, they, they arrived an hour late for meetings on Sundays and that sort of thing. And also today, um, this period actually, it's not only today, is the, uh, marks the Qing, uh, we say Qing Bing or Qing Ming or Qing, Qing Bing or Qing, uh, Qing Ming uh, ceremonies, uh, uh, celebration. Well, what do you call it? Uh, anyway, it's remembering those that have passed away in the Chinese tradition and visiting um, cemeteries and cleaning the graves and um, uh, putting flowers and things and offering food for those that have departed and remembering uh, what they've done for us, which is a wonderful thing to do. And I think this is a great thing to do. We should do it more than once a year, though. (laughs) We should do it more than once a year. But it's a very big, um, uh, what do you say, Think something that's celebrated each year, big occasion. occasion. That's a good word, isn't it? A big occasion every year. Because I'm going to say, do you celebrate? You know, um, you know, your. I suppose you do in a way by remembering them. You're celebrating that their contribution to your life and to the lives of those around you. So that's a, that is. A, and at the end of this, uh, I've been requested, if I remember, to share merits with those that have passed away the deceased, for that they have a good rebirth wherever they have been reborn already, um, and if, if possible too, for an improvement on that if, if, it, if they're born in a difficult realm of existence. So that's today. That's quite a lot already, isn't it? <laughs> so, and uh, also uh, I was going to start the, the theme of the talk. I won't say what it is yet, but... I was going to say, what aspect of the Buddhist teachings don't you find in other religions? What aspect or spiritual traditions? Anybody got any ideas? Wow, got it in one. <laughs> Not self or non-self or anatta. Gee, yes, you don't find that. There, there are a few other things, I think, too, you know. We do, I think we have meditation in different traditions. We certainly have giving, you know, we have, uh, we call it dana in Buddhism, as in other traditions, and certainly sila, this is morality, virtue, is in other traditions. And uh, some forms of bhavana are to meditation are in other traditions. But probably in Buddhism, uh, the areas that are, that uh, the Buddha uh, that are unique to Buddhism are like uh, insight. Insight is quite unique, I think, to uh, Buddhism. Though other traditions, I guess, they will have insights into impermanence, into uh, the difficulties of life, the unsatisfactoriness that they experience in life, and also uh, not but not not self. So today it will be about um, a non-self or anatta.
And I thought I would start with a very nice uh, sutta which actually ties in very much with the theme of, uh, even with the Christian ideas actually, because it's uh, not that different in a sense from Hindu ideas too. And in this sutta, it's a sutta with the bhikkhuni or the nun, uh, sister Vajira, and she was an arahant and so fully enlightened. And Mara, this is like the, uh, we say the tempter in Buddhism, and often it sounds like an external figure, but it could be also a psychological figure in, within ourselves. And Mara says to this uh, bhikkhuni, Vajira, he says, by whom has this being been created? Where is the maker of this being? Where has this being arisen? Where does this being cease? Sounds pretty relevant, doesn't it? <laughs> the being is this self that uh, people um, assume to be a self. And she says, Why now do you assume a being, Mara? Is that your wrong view? This is a heap of components or a collection of components. Here no being is found. And then this is a very nice simile, and I think it helps explain um, the idea of non-self to a, in a different angle. Just as with the coming together of parts, the word chariot, like a vehicle, is used, so when the five components of existence uh, come together, there is the conventional term, a being. And the five components of existence, this is the body or form, this is feeling, perceptions, this is uh, will, and this is consciousness or the knower. So when those things come together, we have a being, and they, they arise at birth, those, those things arise at birth, but break up at death. So, and then the mind, when the body splits, when the body breaks up, then the mind moves on after that. But we take, often we take this body and this mind in this particular situation as a self. So I thought I'd uh, talk about um, non-self today, anatta, and it's a very deep subject, so just see how it goes. <laughs> but it's, uh, of course, what's the main teaching, what's the main sutta that people remember, the main teaching of the Buddha about non-self? As the Natalakana sutta. This is the characteristic of non-self. That sounds a bit intimidating, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm always amazed with the Buddha's teaching. They're so, uh, they're so uh, scientific in a way and so penetrative. It's just amazing. And you see this in this sutta. And I thought that would be a good way to deal with what is uh, non-self, what is anatta. And um, of course, in the Buddha's teaching, there are many different angles on non-self. So we just had one angle there, you know, that when we have this collection of parts, when it's collected together, we take it as a self. But if you, if you look at it separately, you know, for instance, with a vehicle, nobody would say, oh, well, the tyre is a car, or the axle's a car, the engine's a car. No, it isn't, until it comes together. And it only comes together for a, uh, for a limited period of time, doesn't it? These cars, they fall apart much quicker than, 
than we would like, actually. And we're always having to repair them, look after them, just as we do with the body as well. So that gives us one angle on it. And the Anattalakana Sutta gives us another angle on non-self, how that, uh, how that comes to be. And the importance of non-self, often think of it, I know one of my favorite teachings from Ayakema was that, you know, if people have a big sense of self, and I think all of us meet people with a big sense of self, big egos, and she said she likened it to a, a very fat person. She said, trying, this is like, get, trying to get through a narrow doorway. They'll brush up against the doorway. It's very hard for them to get through. Maybe have to go through sideways. And she said in the same way, someone with a big ego is going to brush up against the world, brush, brush up against people, other people. And so this, this uh, sense of self, you know, this ego really is, you know, most people think of it as a great treasure, don't they? But in actual fact... It's our biggest liability, and it causes us the most suffering. So this is why it's so important in, in the Buddha's teaching, the, this uh, teaching on non-self. And this, and this sutta that uh, uh, Dr. Jai just mentioned, the Anattalakana Sutta, is the second teaching of the Buddha to uh, the uh, five ascetics. They were former disciples of the Buddha, but they deserted him when he started eating solid food and giving up, almost fasting himself to death and doing all these sorts of difficult practices. And, but when the Buddha came, when he, uh, when he became enlightened, when he awoken, uh, he remembered, he thought, who would be able to understand these teachings? So he went to Varanasi, where these five ascetics were living in a deer park. It Isipatana, they call it, near Varanasi, yeah. And, um, of course, initially they had great reservations about him. They thought, well, he's, he's reverted to luxury. He's, he's eating solid food. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? And uh, it took him some time to uh, convince them that he had actually uh, awoken, become enlightened, understood the nature of reality. But they eventually did listen, and they did the first uh, teaching he gave, the famous... Uh, setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma. Uh, at that, on that occasion, which is about the Four Noble Truths, one of them became enlightened, the first stage of enlightenment, and that was Anya Kandanya. He became a stream enterer, or a so-one, as they say in Sri Lanka. And then the second teaching he gave a few days later, the Buddha gave a few days later, was this, this teaching, the Anattalakana Sutta. And uh, for those that have been on pilgrimage to India, it's lovely because there's a, a very big uh, stupa, you know, these large uh, uh, memorials for the ashes and remains of an enlightened person. And they call that the Anattalakana. They say that's where, the spot where the Anattalakana Sutta was uh, spoken by the, the Buddha, the Lord Buddha. So... I will read a little bit of it and then sort of explain uh, as I go along and hopefully make it a little bit more interesting and, and more relevant, uh, as relevant as possible to us. Accessible, that's the word. So the, the, uh, the Buddha begins, Monks, form is not self. And of course, form is body, material aspects of existence. And then uh, the Buddha continues, For if, monks, form was self, this form would not lead to affliction, and it wouldn't be possible to have, uh, to have it 
of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it is not possible to have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. So I hope you sort of followed that. So the Buddha is is looking at uh, the what uh, uh, the components of existence we call them. We call them the panchakanda, beginning with form. These are the things that we uh, that all beings come into existence with. There are some realms where they don't uh, they have uh, may not have form, but uh, most realms they do have form. So this is the beginning of looking at what we take to be ourselves, you know, this body and the mind, isn't it? The body and the mind. But the body is a number one <laughs> for many people. You say to people, oh, do you think, uh, you know, your body is yourself? And many people w- would say, no, no, they, they wouldn't. But if you, um, if you look at the way we behave and the situations that can come up in our lives, for instance, if we get, get cancer, Suddenly, we see how attached we are to the body, how identified we are to the body. And there are lots of other occasions. If somebody says, oh, you're looking very uh, chubby or fat, wow, <laughs> will, will that get a reaction? It really will. But so this is a, an aspect of uh, form. As I said, it's, all, it's the body. Yes, it's our body, and that's our most immediate experience is the body, but other material things too. And you can see how much people attach to possessions, their cars. Sometimes people, you know, it's like an extension of themselves, their vehicles, you know, not a chariot, <laughs> but vehicles, and they identify with them. Uh, and the same can be with cars and things. So we take this body very much, even if we intellectually, we know, no, this is not, not me, isn't it? you know. Uh, often, at a very deep level, we identify so strongly with the body, and we only realise it in um, particular situations, but it doesn't take much to realise that there's a lot of attachment to it. And it reminded me of the story I often tell of Nasruddin <laughs> when he was walking along a road in, and he saw something shining in the ditch. So he bent over and picked it up. And it was a metal mirror, a tin mirror. It was a shiny mirror. And he picked it up and he looked into it. He said, oh, my goodness, so ugly. And he said, and he threw it back in the ditch and he said, no wonder they threw it away. <laughs> But that's, that's how we, if somebody says something about our appearance, you know, we're looking chubby or a bit more wrinkled or, or whatever, we really can take it very personally. We're, oh, no wonder they threw it away. So, and the important thing, and this is, goes through the whole sutta, the idea is that anything that leads to uh, affliction. It's a, it's a very, it's an English word we don't use it very much. It's a bit sort of high. But what it means is something that brings problems and difficulties to us, to suffering. Um, that this is not a grounds for taking, you know, the body, for instance, to be a self. Because the idea, as the Buddha is pointing out, is that whatever is a self shouldn't lead to our harm, shouldn't lead to problems and difficulties. And so often, for instance, you know, when we are sick, 
we will think uh, uh, it reminds me of Ajahn Brahm when he was, when people are sick they go to the doctor and say doctor there's something wrong I'm sick and of course Ajahn Brahm in turns that upside down and says we should really go to the doctor because these bodies are of this nature. They get sick, they get old, they die. If they, get, if they live long enough, they get old and then they die. But he says we should go to the doctor and say, doctor, something's right. <laughs> I'm sick. And of course the doctor doesn't mind because business. <laughs> and I wonder, does anyone here know of anybody that's never been sick? And that'd be amazing. Are there any people that have never been sick? That would be extraordinary, actually. Or got old and died? I think that would be pretty amazing. And as I mentioned, it's very obvious what a lot of suffering our bodies uh, can cause us. And just this morning, someone was telling me um, about a friend who has sciatica, and she is in excruciating pain and went to the hospital and uh, they they couldn't. They couldn't do anything for her. They gave her some, I guess, some uh, some medication for it, and she went home. But in excruciating pain, they said it would take uh, four to six weeks, I think it was, before that pain would reduce and the sciatica would reduce. But it just shows you the liability of a body. Actually, can experience these things, and it's not easy when people have sciatica, when they have cancer, uh, all these things. So it's um, so it does. It leads to our, leads to problems and difficulties. And it reminds me of a saying one of my first teachers, Buddhist teachers, Ajahn Jagro, used to say. He said, "Have body, will trouble." <laughs> so it is pretty obvious that the body causes affliction. Uh, the it should not be ignored, though, that it's also a vehicle for pleasure you know, for experiencing the world, isn't it? And people do get happiness from it. If it were only, um, you know, suffering, if it were only dukkha, then people would think, give it up, give it up, don't want this body, don't want to get reborn in a body. But it's a mixture. And so we are, um, we're always looking for the happiness and trying to avoid the unhappiness, the suffering. We can, of course, do... Even though it's, uh, you know, we can't control the body, that's the other aspect that the Buddha is talking about, that we can't say the, the, the body. And people, you know, I want you to look this way. I don't want you to look that way. You know, I don't want this problem. I don't want the sciatica. Um, I, I want to be free of the sciatica. We, we can't do that. We can't say that. But, of course, you know, people do what they can and you know uh, I think cosmetic surgery is very very popular and uh, keeps surgeons busy because people want to change the way they look but the basic nature of the body we can't change it will get old it will uh, eventually uh, get sick and die um, so these things we can do a little with the body but we cannot control it that's a that's an essential part of what the Buddha is saying. A, the body and these other components of existence, they lead to affliction, they lead to problems, difficulties, to suffering, and we can't control them. We, we have some degree of control, but not, not enough to prevent them from getting sick, not enough to prevent them from getting old and dying. So these are 
This is the body, the nature of the body. And you can see, you know, in this society, I think if we see how much people, how much emphasis we put on the body, isn't it? Gyms, beauty parlors, you know, all sorts of things that we do for the body. It's incredible. And um, this, it's, uh, in the end, we cannot prevent it from getting old. We cannot prevent it from getting sick and dying. And then the next thing that the Buddha says is non-self, is feeling. And this is, uh, this is actually, when we say that feeling is non-self, it sounds a bit, uh, you know, sort of so-so, but in actual fact, feeling is what drives our lives. It's really pushing us. Ajahn Brahm often calls it experience because it's, it's in a way that's quite a good word for it, actually. But the Buddha talks about three types of feelings, and these are the feelings that drive our lives. Feelings, pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. Very scientific. And uh, you might think, well, it doesn't sound like much. <laughs> it doesn't sound like much. And these are physical feelings in the body and the feelings in the mind too. So pleasant bodily feelings, pleasant, unpleasant bodily feelings, neutral bodily feelings, pleasant mental feelings, unpleasant mental feelings and neutral uh, mental feelings. But as I say, they run our lives. We are, all of us, are chasing after pleasant feelings through what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and what we think or feel in the mind. The emotions, that's a better way of putting it. The emotions that come up in the mind. They, we're looking for pleasant experience. And this is what uh, is driving the world, really. And particularly, you know, in a material sense, people looking for happiness out there, often looking for happiness out there in the five senses. So people like to travel a lot, not now with COVID. <laughs> They're not going many places. And uh, they like uh, to listen to uh, music, uh, listen to nice conversations, watch movies, eat. Food is a biggie. Food is a big thing and smells and uh, um, touches through the body, you know, all these things. And the mental side to the emotional side, the reflecting on these, the happiness from these, thinking about them. But so this is uh, driving our life that way. But the other side of it is we are running away from unpleasant feeling. We call it pain, pain in the body. Like that uh, woman that uh, I mentioned who uh, um, was experiencing sciatica. Can't run away from it. This is really the challenge of illness, actually, and the challenge when we have uh, very serious illnesses like cancer and so on. We can't run away from the pain. But this is what most of our lives are spent doing, run away from this this unpleasant feeling, this pain. And, uh, and often we take it in a very personal sense um, that it's happening. To, why is it happening to me? Why is it happening to me? But I think people who are doctors or nurses, um, uh, they see this this process happening in before their eyes, day in, day out. It's not a personal experience, but certainly when we have a lot of pain, it's very difficult to deal with. And it's really, a, uh, I call it a hard lesson. Uh, it's a hard teaching 
how to deal with this. So this is driving us in life, is the attraction to the pleasant feeling, those things we think we're going to get pleasant feeling from, happiness from, and running away from those things that uh, are painful, whether they be physical or mental. The mental actually is is probably one of the biggest difficulties these days in a society where there's quite a bit. We're quite an affluent society. There are poor people. But uh, one major, uh, the major source of unhappiness is things like anxiety, things like depression, these sorts of things um, that produce un- unpleasant feeling. They are the things that people are having to deal with. And it's very easy to take, you know, this anxiety, this uh, depression as being me. It's who, it's who I am at this moment. And, of course, when we do that, it strengthens those, uh, those emotions, those experiences. And, of course, with the neutral feeling, you know, I mentioned neutral feeling. This is feeling that it's neither, well, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You know, if you ask most people, they wouldn't say neutral feeling. That's a very scientific way of looking at it. They say, oh, nothing really, you know, nothing. Because nothing means that it's uh, it's not pleasant, it's not unpleasant, oh, it's nothing. And for most people in this society, that is actually, what is that the cause of? Boredom. (laughs) If people are bored, this is actually one of the greatest sufferings in this society. People, boredom, they'll do anything to to get out of boredom. And so they, uh, you know, try all different sorts of things. But when we have boredom as a state of mind, nothing, nothing satisfies us. No, it's not that. I don't want a coffee. I don't want to watch a, a video. I don't want this. I don't want to do that. So this neutral feeling also, in a sense, becomes... Um, unpleasant for us. It really is, you know, nothing happening. It's it's not a big deal, but we can make a big deal of it. And so these feelings, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, and um, neutral, they do, uh, you can see, they lead to problems and difficulties in our lives. So this is the affliction the Buddha's talking about. But they also are beyond our control. We can influence them. And that's the good news with the Buddha. We can influence the, the mind states we experience for certain. We can uh, uh, do, do practices which bring up positive emotions like uh, metta practice, loving-kindness practice, those sorts of things, uh, remembering uh, people's kindness and uh, the gifts and things, what people have done for us, and that is bringing up gratitude and thanks. Free happiness, as Ajahn Brahm calls it, so we can work with it. But we cannot control it. We can't just turn it on and off. They come and they go. And the other, the third aspect of our experience, it sounds very, you know, you know, when you break it down like this, it's very sort of, as I say, scientific or analytical, you know. But this is our experience, having a body, having feelings, and, and also the next one, having perceptions. And perceptions are those things that, that ability to recognize things. It's the, it is partly related to memory, but it's, uh, it's that ability to recognize, make sense of what we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And even, yeah, even some of the thoughts and emotions we're having, recognizing what they are. So in these perceptions too, um, 
is they have a very strong influence on the mind because we, if we perceive something, we usually 100% believe that is the case, you know. And you can see what trouble and what problems that brings up for people. You know, they can see somebody talking to another person, you know, uh, they may see them at work talking about, uh, talking to another person, and then they might have this perception. They're talking about me. <laughs> what are they saying about me? <laughs> and then the perception will be informed by the memory. I remember they said this about me the last time. This person doesn't like me, so they're probably saying something negative about me. And these perceptions are so important. We get imprisoned by them. We believe in them so much. And they really do cause a lot of problems for us. And how often, you know, we have a perception of, of a situation like that at the office or wherever it be, that they're talking about me. And then we find out, no, they weren't talking about me at all. You know, talking about something totally different. Or they were talking about me in a very positive state, in a positive way. So these perceptions are not trustworthy. And the Buddha mentions that the perceptions that we have arise from different views that we have. So if we have a view someone doesn't like us, when we see them talking to somebody else, we can think, well, they're talking about me, you know, and saying, bad-mouthing me. And uh, so these perceptions arise from our views, but they also get embroidered, get in, uh, increased by our thoughts about them. So it's pretty obvious that our perceptions, and some of the perceptions that are most, most, most harmful, what are they, where are they coming, what are they about? Do you have any idea? Some of the most negative, most hurtful, most uh, most suffering in our lives, those, those perceptions about ourselves, exactly, that's it. It's about ourselves. Some of them are really unkind. And we think they're true, you know, that uh, I'm a failure, I can't do this, I can't do that, I am this, I am that. You know, these perceptions are really, you know, they are suffering big time, actually. And the Buddha says that uh, also with these perceptions, we can't control them. They will come according to our conditioning. You know, we'll, if we've seen things or in a particular way, we'll tend to see them in that way again and again. So they're coming up from that conditioning and we can't control them, but we don't have to believe them. <laughs> if we have a little bit of a doubt with perception, yeah, I did see, uh, I did see um, them talking together, but I don't know what they're talking about. Maybe it's not about me, you know. Just keeping a, that sort of doubt in mind. And that, that actually brings more happiness to us than when we believe the perception, well, they must be talking about me. What else is there to talk about? <laughs> Isn't that incredible? <laughs> That's the nature of self. And the next thing that the Buddha says is non-self. They, they, uh, they call it sankhara, sankhara. But I do like Ajahn Brahm's translation of will. It's will. There's this quality in our minds, in our experience, of, of actively uh, doing things, making things of, of what we experience. Uh, we often call it one of the major parts of this aspect of the mind is intention, what we intend to do. We tend, to, uh, then we will do those things. 
And I like um, Ajahn Brahm's uh, way of uh, viewing it too, that this is the doer. People can relate to that. And we are really addicted to doing. <laughs> and, uh, and we often take a lot of pride in our doing too, you know, and identify with that aspect of our experience. And uh, Ajahn Brahm points out this is one of the last areas of self that it's hard to see. You know, we're so attached to all the doing we do, all the controlling, and we feel like we're the one who decides what's happening and all these sorts of things. So uh, to see that as uh, um, harming us, hurting us, it may be difficult for some people to see. But you can, you know, when we have to make decisions, for instance, that really can torture people. <laughs> I know, I've had tough times with making decisions. Some things are very hard to decide. And uh, so this is the area of intention, you know, and you weigh it up. And, and it does lead to a lot of um, mental turmoil. It can lead to a lot of mental turmoil for people. So this, this is the aspect of um, it creates difficulties in our lives, this doing. It also means that we have to be busy. <laughs> doing is like this uh, um, slave driver, isn't it? Slave driver. This is what we call tanha or tanhaya in Sinhala. It's driving us, telling us we, we have to have this, this craving, this desire, wanting, that we won't be happy without it. We have to do this. So in order to fulfill these uh, desires, these wantings, we have to work so hard. People do all the things that they do to get the big house, the big, the big job, the, the power, the uh, status, um, the right partner, you know, all these things are driven by this wanting. And uh, wanting uh, this, this, uh, this aspect of the mind, the will, Will and wanting are pretty close together. Wanting is telling us, it's making the agenda, the to-do list, the to-do list, so that we, we have all these tasks we have to accomplish, we have to do, without which one won't be happy, won't be satisfied, we won't be fulfilled. So the doer and this will or sankara keeps us pretty busy and it causes a lot of... Um, a lot of problems and difficulties for us. You see it very obviously when there's competition. <laughs> when we want something or someone that other people want, then you can see the difficulty that comes into play. And uh, you even see it with uh, um, things like the COVID-19 vaccine throughout the world. There's a lot of competition for it. And so this brings up a lot of um, difficulties and problems, this will. But also one thing that people find very difficult, you know, the Buddha says, ah, will is non-self. But most people would think, would feel, no, no, will is me. You know, I decide. I, it's free will, isn't it? That's what we say. There's this idea of free will that uh, uh, it's a big debate in philosophy and in Christianity too, you know, that, yeah, yeah, we're free, we've got free will. We decide what to do. And I'm the one that's choosing. But if we look into it, we can see that much of the deciding, the choosing, um, is not really, uh, it isn't free actually, it comes from conditioning. The things that we, for instance, think we 
have to do often come from, you know, the conditioning of our parents. Our parents say, well, you've got to have family, you've got to have kids, you've got to have this, you've got to have that. And not only our parents, it's schooling, it's our friends, it's the society we live in, the time we live in. All these things condition the things that we think we're choosing and deciding, the things that we're doing, we're willing. And um, I know uh, it's very interesting when Ajahn Brahm does a um, nine-day retreat, usually about three-quarters of the way he gets to this <laughs> about will not being, uh, will being conditioned, not being self. And people go, you can see them backing off. They think, wow, how can this be so? But the interesting thing, the reason, well, I could say that here today, most people say, oh, so what, so what? <laughs> but when you're at a nine-day retreat and you're meditating, the mind getting very still, very peaceful, then something, hearing something like that, wow, it really, it almost feels like, um, uh, like an assault on who you think you are and what the world is about, you know, to hear will is conditioned. But I say to people, if you think will isn't conditioned, what about advertising? <laughs> they don't do it. They don't do it just to inform us about their products. They they want to sell us their products. And the amazing thing is, yes, we decide whether we buy it or not, but we go out and buy it. <laughs> so it does work, and they wouldn't spend the money if if it didn't work. So that's a, that's a big area for us, you know, this idea of will, what I'm doing, you know, that I'm deciding, I'm choosing. And next area that's very big in the Buddha says, consciousness is non-self. And I think uh, it's very good. I like uh, to simplify consciousness. Ajahn Brahm does it too. It's more like the knower, that ability to know. But also... The way the Buddha uh, teaches about consciousness, it's not just one consciousness, because sometimes you have this idea, a very vague idea of just this sort of consciousness, you know, maybe universal consciousness or cosmic consciousness, and we're all part of it. But the Buddha talks about consciousness in terms of six consciousnesses. So hearing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, and the mind consciousness the interesting thing with the whole way the Buddha's teaching, when you start to divide things into parts, they no longer have that solid self-entity, that quality of being one thing. And especially you add impermanence into the mix. And uh, as we are talking now too, you know, suffering or difficulty, problems, then it makes these things almost unsupportable as being self. So... As I mentioned, the six consciousnesses and uh, and mind consciousness. What is what's really happening when we when we know things? And this is quite uh, one would ne one needs quite a bit of um, what do you say samadhi, this stillness in the mind, this very powerful mind that can see deeply into things. That really is what's happening with consciousness is that. The mind consciousness is interpreting all the other senses that we're experiencing, identifying them through perception, uh, then reacting to them through, uh, through will. I like this, I don't like this, I want to get rid of it, I want it. So what's happening is we're seeing, you're seeing me, and then the mind recognizes seeing a uh, monk, seeing this form, 
oh, that's Ajahn Nisarana, and so on. And then the hearing, hearing the words, and then the mind recognises what those words are. And depending on our cultural uh, conditioning, our, our, uh, whether English is our first language or not, this can be, uh, it can differ. So in other words, our minds will try and make sense of it. But we may not have that word. We may not be able to access that accent. So the mind is, uh, mind consciousness is also when we're tasting, um, you know, then the whole process is going on again, you know, uh, like, dislike, you know, uh, reacting. No, I don't think I'll have more of this. I think that's enough. Or, you know, all this is going on. But the mind is recognizing it. No, this is my favorite. This is not the favorite. And the same with smells and touches. And even mind states, the minds recognize, yep, depression, <laughs> whatever it is. And so. When you see that the mind is working like this, then where, the, the, the Buddha would argue, where is self in that process? Is it in the mind consciousness? Or Most people wouldn't say in seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. So that is um, the knower. And as I say, those two areas, the, the doer and the knower, they're the big areas that we really identify with. You know, what I've achieved in the world, the doer, you know, all the things that I've achieved that I think, you know, I've made a difference with, that's we can take as self. And it reminds me of um, another Nazarudin story. There's quite a few, actually. I'm just trying to think which one. Though. <laughs> yes. There was one occasion that uh, Nasrudin had come, had been to see the king. He'd been to see the king in the uh, country, king of the country. And he came back to the village and the villagers all heard that he'd seen the king. And they said, oh, they came out and said, how wonderful when he was a celebrity. Everybody said, wow, Nasrudin, he's actually met the king. And uh, oh, that's wonderful. And they were very enthused and uh, happy. And they all went, then they went off, and one man stood behind, as, as often happens, and he said, Nazarudin, what did the king say to you? Nazarudin said, the king said, get out of my way. <laughs> but that's, people will take that as a self, you know, the fact that he was a celebrity and all that. So, amazing, get out of my way. <laughs> so, quite nice. But then, you know, in this sutta, the Anattalakana Sutta we're looking at, the Buddha then continues, not only is he he's saying that these five components of existence, you know, our form or body, our feelings, our perceptions, our, our uh, will and our knowing, not only are they not self because they lead to affliction, lead to harm, problems, and because we can't control them, then he, then he goes at another angle and he says... What do you think, monks, is form, feeling, perception, will and knowing permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir, is what is impermanent, suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded as this is mine, this I am, this is myself. And they say, no, no, venerable sir. So this hits on a number of things. If something is impermanent, if it comes and goes, can it be a self? Isn't self something that's always there? 
the 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 observer, the 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 the, the entity that we take ourselves to be. It has to be permanent, and and as we already mentioned, that uh, if something is impermanent, it means it's not possible to get permanent happiness. There will be happiness and unhappiness. But here it says that whatever is, in, is impermanent will tend to lead to unhappiness, will tend to lead to dissatisfaction. Because even if we get what we like, after a time, we don't like it anymore. In fact, there's a, <laughs> there's a, a song I mention quite often, often by a famous American sage. And the song title is, When you get what you want, you don't want it anymore. And uh, do you know who sang that? What American sage sang that? It's a bit period, really. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I said, I keep thinking, she never listened to the words. <laughs> so, so what is impermanent tends to lead to suffering. And... What is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change? So it's not there all the time. How can it be itself? This is not mine. This I am. Uh, the, uh, how can it be regarded as this is mine, this, is, this I am, this is myself? It can't. It can't. And that's one of the things that's very helpful to remember in life too. All the things that we think are mine, it's impermanent. You know, when we pass away from this life, can't take this body with us, who wants to? <laughs> can't uh, take our home, we can't take all our achievements, we can't take uh, vehicles, whatever. We can't take them with us. The Egyptians, of course, and the pharaohs, the times the pharaohs, they tried to take everything with them. <laughs> they had their chariots and, and sometimes even their wives uh, were buried with them and things like that. So they tried to take everything with them for their afterlife. But in actual fact, we can't take them with us. So it means in this life, when we live life, we can just be hold things very, uh, very lightly. Yes, they are ours for the time being. They are mine for now. But they won't always be mine. They're just passing through our hands, these things. And these are, these are, you know, our relationships, our children, our possessions, all the things that we hold as mine. They're just, they will. They, one day, that will not be mine. We'll move on the, when death comes. The mind will move on. And uh, then there will be new life, new attachments, unless we've understood the Buddha's teaching. So, and then, um, so that is uh, something that uh, is, is very important, that this aspect of impermanence and uh, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, really comes together with the idea of non-self. They're, they're, they're a package. <laughs> they're a total package. <laughs> they, come together, they reinforce each other, actually. And, um, but the importance, I'll just get that on to that in a minute. And uh, I think it's very easy for us to see, too, you know, um, in terms of this life experience that, you know, how we take ourselves to be, what we thought of ourselves to be when we were, say, you know, really young, if we were going to kindergarten or whatever, and the difference between that self and the self that we are now. We get a feeling, yeah, no, the, the self that... Uh, we do have this the quality of personality, character. There is definitely something here. 
arising from our conditioning, the influences in our lives, definitely there's something here. It's not fixed though, it's changing all the time. In kindy, in kindergarten, we liked dolls or teddy bears and we got very upset about anyone who was going to take our teddy bear away or our doll away. Now we wouldn't think, you know, uh, when we're older, we wouldn't think anything of it, you know, at all. We've changed and uh, that sense of self is quite different. So as I say, the idea of a part-time self doesn't really uh, stand and that's what the Buddha is pointing out and it shouldn't lead to suffering. But the Buddha in this teaching, I'm going to finish off actually soon, he doesn't leave it at that. He really hammers the point home and uh, he makes it absolutely categorical. <laughs> he goes, Therefore, monks, any kind of form or body, feeling, perception, will, knowing, whatsoever, whether past, future or present, whether it's internal, external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all form, all feelings, all perceptions, will and knowing should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Wow. <laughs> he's just making everything, you know, he's saying there's nothing one can latch on to as a self. People try <laughs> and they desperately try to find something that uh, they can see as a self. But he's really making it absolutely clear that there is nothing we can latch on to as me or mine. But as I say, there is a personality, there is uh, our characters, and they're changing over time, and, and they will. And then the Buddha the re continues with the result of seeing things in this way. He says, Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple experiences, I like this term better, turning away uh, from form, feeling, perceptions, will and knowing. So the mind sees that these are impermanent, that they lead, they don't lead to my lasting happiness. And they're not me, they're not mine, they're not a self. And so the mind can turn away from, and this is deep wisdom, this is deep understanding. And uh, the Pali word for it is nibida when the mind really detaches. We don't detach. The mind sees it. You know, there's no point, you know, because it's all impermanent. It is all leading to unsatisfactoriness. It cannot be perfect, and it's non-self. And then the result of that, the Buddha continues, experiencing turning away, as I call it. Some people call it disenchantment. Ajahn Brahm likes revulsion or repulsion. I think it's a bit sort of negative for revulsion or repulsion. I don't know. It doesn't do anything for me. But turning away I like because it's the natural quality of the mind when it sees things accurately for what they really are. Forget it. Not interested. <laughs> it turns away from it. It's no longer, you know... Uh, caught up in that thing, that attachment to that thing, thinking it's going to bring happiness, thinking it's going to bring welfare. So experiencing this turning away, he or she becomes dispassionate. So there's that letting go. There's no longer that passion, that desire, that uh, we say craving or wanting for these things. We just say, not worth it. <laughs> and through dispassion, his or her mind is liberated 
And when it is liberated, that's the mind, there comes the knowledge, it is liberated. It's very interesting, it emphasis is on it is liberated. It's not me liberated or he liberated or she liberated, it is it, it's the mind. Because so often we take the body to be ourselves, but we also more so take the mind to be us. And then when the mind is liberated, it's liberated from it's liberated from desire, being pushed around by desire, being pushed around by aversion, and pushed around by delusion, not knowing the reality of experience. And then when the mind is liberated from these negative qualities, when it's liberated from um, uh, wanting, craving, then it, it continues. He or she understands. Destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What has had to be, what had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. So that's the end of coming into existence again and again. And a person that uh, understands this has become fully enlightened. They've become an arahant. And they will no longer, the mind will no longer want to be, as I often say, we all are boomerangs. It will not come back. <laughs> it will be gone because it's understood that there is no point. The playground isn't really a playground. <laughs> and it's seen it um, for what it really is. And it's, it's important to say too, you know, this may sound, well, oh, it doesn't sound like much fun, but in actual fact, when people see um, impermanence, when they see dukkha, when they see non-self, they feel really happy because they know that all, they have, the reason they haven't found happiness in the world is because it's not, not lasting happiness, it's not on offer. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's why that's saying joy, joy at last to know there is no happiness in the world. The happiness is in the mind, inside. And people know that to a certain extent, but not deeply. And then... So it's good to realize that this is the, it is actually great happiness. And this understanding leads to the first stage of enlightenment, of course, is where uh, somebody sees impermanence. They see that everything's of the nature to arise, is of the nature to cease. And that can trigger understanding that therefore no lasting happiness, therefore no lasting I, me, or self, uh, I, me, or mine. And therefore, as a result of that, they become a stream enter because they see there is no fixed person in here. They call this Sakaya Ditti. And therefore, they also know, too, the path to liberation because they've experienced it for themselves. They know that all these uh, different way of rites and rituals, they call them, or observances or vows, are... They don't lead, uh, other ones don't lead there to enlightenment. They know what leads to enlightenment. And they know the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha have gone in that direction. So this is the whole point of seeing non-self. Because when one sees non-self, it will be seeing conditionality too, the fact that this is a conditioned uh, experience, the process that we of life, is a, is a, it is a process, not a self. And, of course, this is Paticca Samapada, dependent origination. But then we finish off here, and this is the, the uh, end of the talk, too. <laughs> it's about time. 
That is what the Blessed One said. Elated, those monks delighted in the Blessed One's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the bhikkhus of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Non-clinging. That's upadana. So sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. So may we, may we develop the understanding of non-perception, uh, non-self, uh, non develop the perceptions of non-self in our lives. Look, look at our experience in, in a more analytical way. You know, see the body for what it is. See the mind for what it is. And in that process, we learn so much. Not only do we learn so much, we feel so happy, so light, because we've been taking everything so personally. That's the other side of self. It take everything personally. And then we're like that fat person trying to get through the narrow doorway. We're always finding life as we're brushing up against life. So I'd like to finish there and uh, to uh, invite any questions, if there are any questions. So, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. It's a deep subject, that's to say the least, actually. <laughs> I sort of wondered whether I was ready for it, <laughs> to talk about it. Thank you, Bhante, for the mm. very yes, deep uh, discourse uh, to understand. <clears throat> uh, the, what he said in Atraka Sutta, Buddha sort of breaks down how we see ourselves. But uh, what he says is that this five aggregates of arising mm -hmm. uh, comes together. Yeah. When you say impermanent, actually it's transient for a moment. Yeah. You see, untrained eye, see as self for a moment. Yes. yes. Not that uh, impermanency like you live for a while that die away. Mm. It's a moment, mom, moment yes. momentary. Yes. When you say transient, yeah. uh, impermanent is, Buddha, what Buddha says is, is for the moment you see mm -hmm. as the untrained Mm. I see it as a personality. Mm -hmm. so these are momentarily changing view of Phenomenal. self for the untrained eye, yeah. from moment to moment. Yes. As I said, if I see you, when I recognize you, I create a self and I create you. Mm. When I look at somebody else, mm. I create another self and create another self. Mm. So this view of self is a mm. transient, momentary, fleeting, it's a process, not an mm. entity. Mm. No, that's very good. No, that's, that is good, uh, Dr. Jai. Yeah, impermanence can be seen on a momentary level. Most people can't see it on that level. You need really high degrees of samadhi to see it like that. As I said, with consciousness, when we're talking about momentary nature of consciousness. So that, that, that's very true. But the Buddha is also seeing, and more, uh, you see more often in the suttas, he's talking about impermanence, of talk, about, concerning or regarding old age, sickness and death. That's the sort of impermanence that he's really often mentioning. And the momentary impermanence is um, possible for us to see if the mind is still enough, calm enough, um, and we know what we're looking for, <laughs> what we're looking at, what the area to look at. So that is there. The Buddha's teaching impermanence on every, every level. You know, momentary, he's, he's teaching it on terms of life, a lifetime, our lifetime, and also on a cosmic level, because he, he's talking about, you know, this cosmos, uh, the whole uh, universe that we know, um, dissolving, uh, contracting, and then 
and then going out of existence and coming into existence. Um, it's so he's looking, and he has this. Uh, there's this nice uh, sutta called the Seven Suns, where he talks about the the sun uh, destroying a sun destroying the earth, you know. And it's it's just this whole vision of impermanence and transience. It's this uh, uh, and and the feeling of of impermanence and transience. transience is uncertainty, unreliability, we don't know, you know. And this is this is part of life, you know. If we knew we had a use-by date, that <laughs> this body was going to appear, great. We could just look and say, yeah, yeah, use-by. <laughs> and we would know, but we don't. You know, the use-by date can be any time from birth, straight after birth, to, you know, 100-plus years. So it's, it's unknown. So the Buddha is looking at that impermanence and nature in everything, and it's that deep understanding that uh, it, it realized that everything is of that nature, and therefore, because of that, you know, there isn't any of this lasting happiness. There cannot be a lasting self. Nothing is 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 a, it's a flux. It's a movement. It's a process, and so uh, that uh, that changes the way we see the world. But it also gives rise to this understanding of non-self too, that this is a process. What I take to be me uh, is a process. So, yes, so thank you very much for that. And any online questions? This is always a subject that will bring up a lot of questions. I've got a question. Ajahn. Yes, yes, Sri yes. you gave that example of, um, of uh, the office. You know, somebody... Um, well, you just lost my train of thought there, where... Where, for instance, um, somebody says something, and you see it that you may be thinking mm. that um, they're talking about they're talking about me. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, this sort of thing happens a lot. You know, somebody yeah, may say something, they may do something, and what mm. they say or do, it, it, there's actually nothing really particularly um, bad about it. But along comes with it this immense storyline, mm. right? And it just it just it's just so quick. Mm. Mm. And all of a sudden you're in this whirlwind of a storyline mm. that you just caught up with. Mm. And the preoccupation with that storyline is where the suffering actually really exists. Mm. So is that what we is that something different to perception? Because that mm. that's that storyline is that's the thing that I think that we that you get caught up in and you just can't stop it when it runs. Mm. Yeah, that that is really, and I think this is such an important area. I've given a, a lot of uh, emphasis to it in the last year. That is view or ditti, storylines of view or ditti. And, you know, we can have so many stories. We have storylines about everything. It's just incredible. Ourselves, other people, everything. You know, the government, the weather. You know, we have lots of storylines. And the, the the point with that is... There's two points, is we can see um, whether that storyline is leading to a positive state of mind, wholesome state of mind, or not, to a negative state of mind. If, and I always say that's a very important thing with a view, you know, if it's leading to positive states of mind, positive emotion, great, that's okay, that storyline's fine. But if it's leading to us feeling angry, averse, upset, uh, more confused, or having a lot of desires, then we can say, it's not worth following that. I know you, 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 when the storyline comes up, we can believe it, 
but we also have that capacity to stand back a bit, if we're meditators particularly, you know, to, to look at it and say, is that really true? You know, and that can stop it in its tracks if we, if we doubt it, you know. And uh, so these storylines, they give us a lot of suffering. And uh, I know uh, one teacher, I like her, her way of dealing with it, you know. This is Byron Katie, and she says, you know, when these storylines come up, you say, well, is that true? And then the next one is, can I know that this is absolutely the case? <laughs> and then the third one is, and this is, to me, the clincher. How do I feel when I uh, think this or believe this? You know, and if it's really angry, upset, you know, in a rage or whatever, you know this is really uh, impacting negatively on your life. And then the, th the fourth one is, how would I be if I never had this storyline, if I never thought this? You know, and of course, if you never had that storyline or thought things would just be okay, you know, and you realize that this is what, what comes out of that for me. It's just a story. <laughs> it's just thought. And it's just a view. And therefore, you know, not to take it too seriously. And, at, you know, sometimes you can um, look on it as, you know, watching this movie going on. Because once there's a storyline, it will, it, uh, this is what the Buddha calls the vipalas, it will distort how we see things how we experience things. You know, if we think somebody is a real rat bag, <laughs> whatever they say, you're going to take it in a negative way. It's, oh, look what they said this time, what they did, you know, all that sort of thing. And then we start to think about it, you know, yeah, of course, done it again, look, they're real rat bags. <laughs> and then it just goes round and round. And so this is a, what the Buddha called the distortions of perceptions, but it's what's driving delusion it's what's driving uh, this ignorance that we have so the way out of that is to see first of all not to believe it is is very important and also to see whether it's leading to uh, whether it's leading to benefit happiness health or not and where it's coming from too you know is this coming from a negative source you know what's the the motivation coming from and more importantly, what results come from thinking like this? Having this storyline, what are the results come, that come from this? I feel more angry, I feel more upset, I feel more suspicious about this person or whatever. So really those guidelines can be a help, you know, those four reflections, reflections on whether it is helping or hurting, uh, where it's coming from, is it a negative source? Um, is it giving rise to negative results or pleasant results? So that that's a useful way. But I always say, you know, not believing it is 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 important. Um, it's 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 easy to say, but if we can just keep in mind, well, maybe this isn't correct. You know, it's just a story. But the thing is that our lives are run by these sto stories. There are so many stories. And uh, the one of the ones that I've been talking about in, in more recent times particularly is, uh, you know, the uh, view that um, at the, when death occurs, that's the end of it. There's nothing after that. When the body dies, the mind dies, no experience after that. And some people, when you read it in the suttas, it sounds, well, a bit academic. <laughs> but in actual fact, when you meet people, and like some of my family, you know, they believe that. And I just, I, I can see for them, you know, 
cultivating a lot of attachment to, to family, possessions and everything. If you believe at death it's all going, all gone, how do you feel leading up to that? You either want to distract yourself wildly so you don't focus on it, or you become depressed, we become anxious, um, and your life takes a dive, a nosedive. So, so I think this is, you know, the, the importance of the storylines is, is a very important area. Don't believe the stories. It's particularly those stories about ourselves that are so, so negative, you know, Good grief, you know, they really, they cause a lot of harm and, uh, because they limit the way we uh, see ourselves and limit the way we can operate in the world. And they limit our happiness and the condition unhappiness in a big way. So I don't know if that answered it at all about the stories, but that's a big area. Stories are a big area. So thank you for that. And just... Oh, Angie, yes, please, ask her. There we are, nice to see you. And I've got to do the chanting in a minute, that's what I've got yeah. to do. I just want to ask Ajahn um, the significance of... Uh, oh, thank you. I just want to ask Ajahn, please, yep. the significance of transfer of marriage to our dead ancestors and the use of water, please. Yes, yes, thank can, you, can. Yes, I can indeed. Thanks for that, Angie. Yes, the... Uh, the significance of transference of merit is not really transference of merit. It's, uh, I often call it dedicating a merit. So we're thinking of them, remembering them. And uh, usually when we are thinking of them and remembering, that's one way to honour them. Because when we uh, forget people, that's it. You know, we have uh, Remembrance Day. Do you, rem remembrance? Do you remember Remembrance Day? <laughs> It's 11th of November at the 11th hour. We remember those people who passed away in the First World War and they, they also include other wars too, Second World War, Vietnam, etc. So remembering is a very important part of connecting with those that uh, have passed away, but also remembering what they did for us, you know, the, the things that we're really grateful for. If they were our parents, they gave us life and they gave us... Uh, they educated us, they gave us an understanding of the world. Many of the values that we have come from our parents, actually. So this is the, the process. We you know we feel grateful for it, for what they've given us. And also, at the same time, these people are reminding us, aren't they? We're not here forever. <laughs> and I say, just as today you may be thinking of your past relative ancestors, Cheng, Cheng Bing or Ching, Ching Bing or Ching Ming, yeah, you may be thinking of them, one day your family and friends will be doing the same for, for you, for me. You know, and I say, if we're lucky, they'll be making merit uh, and then dedicating it in memory of my of myself or yourself whoever and this is a this is a much better memorial than going to a tombstone i know cheng bing or cheng ming you go to the to the cemetery and tidy it up and clean it up and that's good isn't it because some of these cemeteries can look really terrible if they're not and then offering food for the departed relatives and often the idea with the food is that if they're a hungry ghost then, you know, they can partake of this food. And we do hear stories that uh, this food, I've heard some people say this food is de-energised after it's been offered to the, the, um, the, 
the departed ancestors. I don't know if that's the case, but I've heard this said. So this is the very big part of it. And when we transfer, it's not transfer of merit. We are making, giving this mem uh, memorial. They're remembering them by doing something good. And I often say to people, if you ever feel sort of depressed because someone has passed away in your life, someone close to you, do something good, say something good, think something good and dedicate it to their memory. And it makes us feel happier. And that's part of the reason for Cheng Bing or Cheng Ming is, is to bring happiness to us, to bring gratitude to us. And when we dedicate this merit to the departed, can they benefit from it immediately? The Buddha says that the, those that are born in ghost realms, you know, in a particular part of a ghost realm, preta, what, preta realm, um, they can uh, immediately benefit from things, physical things that are offered here. But most other beings can't. But if they can be aware, those beings in other realms can be aware that you're doing something good in their name, dedicating merit in their name, remembering them with gratitude, then that will bring happiness to them. And our rebirths uh, from life to life are based on the quality of our mind, where the mind is at, stationed at. And so that mind that may be in, a, say, for instance, a lower realm, and if it were aware that, you know, of doing this today, Cheng Bing, then that would bring happiness, that could bring a better rebirth for them. But I always say we hope our relatives, our friends, don't need the, the merit. We don't know that, do we? They may have been born in a very a heavenly condition. They may, be, may have been born as human beings. So they may, may not need it. May that be the case. So this is the significance of dedicating merit, really, that some beings can uh, get the benefit immediately. Uh, other beings, they can, if they can be aware of it, bring happiness to them. And uh, that can change their minds, can, uh, give them that happiness in their mind, and they can take a better rebirth. So that's how we usually explain, um, you know, the dedication of merit or transference of merit. And also... Ah, that's right. Also, also, you know, when we give, uh, when, when we dedicate merit, it's like giving a gift. And uh, I'll talk about the water in a minute. When we give a gift, usually, particularly if we're doing it from our own free will, we don't feel forced. We feel happy to give. So it brings happiness to us. It's a gift we're giving to them. Often think of uh, dedication and merit a bit like metta, loving kindness. Because when a person has passed away, you can't give them, you know, uh, um, a new phone or, or, or uh, you know, some uh, nice clothes or good food. They don't need that. But they need, uh, often need, to be remembered and for people to do good things in their name. So, and the significance of water, and it comes in the verse that uh, it comes from the uh, Tirakuta Sutta, in which the Buddha mentions that uh, um, the, this merit is like the water falling on a mountain and it flows down the mountain and then flows to the sea. Just as that water flows towards the sea, may this merit, this pin, this uh, dedication of uh, merit 
go to my flow to my relatives. That's what Yata Varibaha Pura Pari Purenti Sagarang Eva Meva Itodi Nang Peta Nang Upankapati. That's what it means, you know, just as the rain falls on the mountain and flows down into the, the rivers and the rivers flow to the sea. May this flow to my relatives. So that's the, the purpose of dedicating merit. And I always say to people, who's making the merit first? Who's getting the merit first? We are! <laughs> it's ourselves! So it's a, it's a very good win-win situation. And if our ancestors can be aware that they're doing, doing good things, they'd be very pleased rather than you know, a group of going with our friends to the casino or the pub or <laughs> race course, wherever it be, <laughs> to the footy. <laughs> um, so this is something, you know, this is, that can bring happiness to them. So that's the explanation of the water too, that it flows to them. So now we can do the dedication of merit and we'll do the um, first part, which is uh, we do, it's also from the same sutta actually, the idang bonyati nang hontu sukita hontunyate. That means this is for my relatives, may my relatives be happy. We can do it in the idang may, there we are. Oh, have we? Did you want to take those? Do you have time? I think another time, I think we have to, yeah, have to, yes, because this is, the Cheng Bing is now. <laughs> Next time, can't put it on hold. No, this is very good. And it's always good when we remember our deceased ones, whether it be a, a, Cheng, a Cheng Ming time or, or other times. Inang menyati nang ho tu sukita hon tunyatayo. Inang menyati nang ho tu sukita hon tunyatayo. Inang menyati nang ho tu sukita hon tunyatayo. Yata bani baha pura pari purenti sagarang. Eva me barito di nang peta nang upakap. Ichitang patitang tum hung, kipamewa samijatu, sambe purentu sankapa chando, panna razo yata mani, joti razo yata, sambe tio vivajantu, sambarogo vinasatu, mate bawatwantarayo, sukindiga yuko. Bhava to Samba Mangalam Rakam to Samba Devata Samba Buddha Nubawena Sada Soti Bhavan to Bhava to Samba Mangalam Rakam to Samba Devata Samba Dhamma Nubawena Sada Soti Bhavan to Bhava to Samba Mangalam Rakam to Samba Devata Samba Sangha Nubawena Sada Soti Bhavan to Abhi 
Iminante sami jantu sadhu 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 sadhu. So wherever they have been reborn, may our relatives, may they have a, a better rebirth if they need it, and may they be happy if they are in a good uh, state, if they can be aware of this, may they be happy that we've remembered them and we've done something good in their name. So thank you for reminding me, Angie. And the significance of the water, pouring the water, is just to, often they, they say it's more like an, um, an aid for mindfulness. Because when we pour the water, it's like we're pouring this out. Uh, it's like the flowing of the merit going to our departed ones. And it's also like a gift. In the time of the Buddha, you know, when they offered something to uh, somebody, they would pour water over the hands. So when the um, King uh, Pasenity, actually it was the, yeah, King Pasenity offered the Jetavana, he would have poured water over the Buddha's hands to show that this was a gift that it had been given. And I think they use it in wedding ceremonies too, actually, as well. That sort of idea of like uh, the uh, signing on the dotted line. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. So very good. So that's the importance of uh, the actual physical pouring of water. It's not not essential, but people like to do it, and it keeps our mind within that moment. Because if you're pouring, you're usually, you know, you're aware. God, I've got to tilt it a bit more. You're in that moment. You're not thinking about the past or the future. You're just there. So it's much much more powerful if we are in the moment. So thank you for that, and that's the. So uh, this is the real way we can do the Cheng Beng, is by dedicating goodness to them, remembering them, being grateful to our, our relatives, our friends who have passed away. Realising we'll be in the same situation sometime. These bodies won't last. So thank you. Thank you for that, Angie. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. There we are. And now is the time... Uh, we can pay respects in a minute to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. But uh, also you're all invited to the meal next door, um, the shared meal. This is part of the uh, uh, part of coming together, isn't it? It's a very important part of this sort of spiritual friendship. So if you'd like to, we can bow to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha as our way of saying thank you, thank you. Oh, oh that's it. <laughs> Ah, uh, if you could. That's great. <laughs>